0: All right, guys, so let's talk today about topic 3.2, which uh, is in the same uh, unit as land based empires. We have just looked at land based empires in topic 3.1, kind of introduced what the different ones are. Now it's going to talk about how these people uh, controlled, how these empires controlled their empires, okay? How the empires controlled their empires, how leaders in these empires controlled their people. That would be a better way to put it. Right, here we go. Um, absolutism in Europe is where we're starting. European rulers of the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, so 1500s to 1700s, wanted to be absolute monarchs who are kings or queens with uh, who believed that all the power within their state's boundaries rested in their hands. Their goal was to control every aspect of society. Absolute monarchs believed in divine right, which is the idea that God created the monarchy and that the monarch acted as God's representative on earth. An absolute monarch answered only to God, not to his or her subjects. Okay. So this just means again, that they were worried about basically, Now, in essence, they're a voice of God. They don't really care what their people think. Okay. Um, Similar to mandate of heaven, but not exactly the same thing. Characteristics of absolute monarchs. They like to centralize power. They want the power for themselves, centralizing it for themselves. Okay and the concept of divine right, which we just talked about. The absolute monarchs you need to know are King Louis XIV of France and uh, his palace of Versailles, and then Peter the Great of Russia, who westernized Russia, but we're gonna talk about him in unit four. I just wanna make sure you know he's an absolute monarch with all the power. All right, King Louis XIV, start with a quote, "'The head alone has the right to deliberate and decide.' and the functions of all the other members consist only in carrying out the commands given to them. The more you grant the assembled people, the more it claims. The interest of the state must come first. And that is King Louis. Uh, You're gonna have to analyze that in the um, essential questions. The first need of a king who wished to rule as he pleased was money. Louis had little trouble in raising money for the reason that he did not need to ask for it, as the English kings did. You'll learn that in a second. The institution in France, which resembled the English parliament, was the estate's general. But this body had never met frequently, and it could scarcely be said to exist anymore since it had not been assembled for nearly 50 years. Louis was therefore free to collect taxes and use the money as he saw fit. What he did with the money was build monumental architecture to legitimize his power. What he built was the Palace of Versailles, so large that he forced the nobles to live at the palace with him so that he could control them even further. Really quick, the uh, Estates General were made up of the people in essence, they were representatives of the people of France. You had a group that were the clergy, the people who were for the church, a group that were the nobles. Those were the first two estates. And then you had a third estate that was everybody else. And the king would never let them meet because he figured if they met, they would want to tell him what to do. So he was like, oh, we're just not going to do anything. And he kept the nobles very happy and the clergy very happy and basically made the peasants pay all these taxes. Okay. Okay. If he didn't have a meeting, he didn't really care because he was an absolute monarch. Okay, in England, at the same time France was under control of King Louis, the English elite had just succeeded in ousting Catholic King James, who had made and suspended laws without the approval of Parliament, taxed without the consent of Parliament, kept a standing army in times of peace, took weapons from Protestants and gave arms and jobs to Catholics, and set excessive bail fines and punishment. All of these factors led Parliament to force King James out because they felt he had violated their rights. And I'm putting in a quote because we haven't really talked about that yet. Because James II abdicated or stepped down and the throne was vacant, William of Orange and his wife Mary, who were both Protestants, remember King James is a Catholic, uh, they were crowned king and queen of England. Mary was actually the daughter of King James, and that happened on April 11th, 1689. As part of their oaths, the new king, William III, and Queen Mary were required to swear that they would obey the laws of parliament. At this time, the Bill of Rights was read to both William and Mary. We thankfully accept what you have offered us, William replied, agreeing to be subject to law and to be guided in his actions by the decisions of parliament. The Bill of Rights was designed to control the power of kings and queens and to make them subject to laws passed by parliament. This was basically exactly what had been agreed to in the, Bill of, oh, sorry, in the Magna Carta in 1215, which you guys had earlier in Unit 1 or 2, I think it was 1. Um, but it had steadily been violated more and more over time by the monarchs. This compromise by the royal family has been called the Bloodless Revolution or the Glorious Revolution. King William could not suspend laws, tax, or raise a standing army in time of peace without the consent or approval of Parliament. Under the Bill of Rights, Protestants had the right to bear arms for purposes of defense. Despite these ideas, according to the English Bill of Rights, English monarchs could not be a Catholic or marry a Catholic. All right, quick hint, Protestantism. Uh, We're going to talk about that basically at the end of this unit where you have this guy, Martin Luther, who's going to challenge the Catholic Church, and the Protestants are going to break away from uh, the Catholics, and you'll see... As you see here, eventually they'll get a lot of power in England. To this day, they have a lot of power in England. Okay? What about the Ottomans? The Def-Shermay system began in the 14th century. Christian boys were recruited by force to serve the Ottoman government. The boys were generally taken from the Balkans, which is east of Turkey, converted to Islam, and then passed through a series of examinations to determine their intelligence and capabilities. In special palace schools, they learned Arabic, Persian, Turkish, math, calligraphy, Islam, horsemanship, and or weaponry. Working in the sultan's personal service was also part of the overall education, and this entailed assigning the boys to various rooms in the palace to look after such items as the uh, sultan's hunting birds or the sultan's valuables. At the conclusion of each stage of the boys' training, the boys passed through a selection and promotion process. The academic education at the palace schools was one of the finest in the Islamic world, and among its aims, was to produce obedience as well as high morals, because of their loyalty to the state, the boys would become guards, gatekeepers, scribes, pages, governors, soldiers, or prime ministers, depending on their merit and seniority. Although the boys were essentially transformed into state slaves, most considered it an honor, as it had led, uh, as it led a highly uh, to highly pr- privileged position in Ottoman administration. This system lasted through the 16th century. There is some evidence that some families, according to Muslim families, that some families voluntarily put their children to be admitted into the system because of the opportunities it pro- provided. As far as strict taxes, the Ottomans continued the practice of a tax for non-Muslims, the jizya, for much of their existence until the 19th century. So just understand that the D- Def D- Shermay is basically converting Christian uh, boys by force to be Islamic, but they get this really amazing education. So these guys become basically like really highly trained um, military um, that are used basically for security for the sultan, even though they were forced into it. The Safavid, like the Ottomans, the Safavid had their gulams, or Christian servant slave soldiers, to strengthen the central government, Shah Abbas, imported slaves from the Caucasus, which is uh, the Georgia or Armenians, the Sarkasans, for example. In 1616 alone, his army counted 130,000 Georgians. The gulam of the Shah Abbas worked in the royal bureaucracy and household, and household, and made 40,000 men standing army equipped with firearms, which of course was gunpowder. You guys know that already. Like in the Ottoman Empire, the Safavid gulams also occupied high state posts, so that by the end of Abbas's rule, a half of the provincial governors were gulams. So very similar to what the Ottomans were doing in Songhai. Sometimes history seems to repeat itself. The rise and fall of two medieval kingdoms of West Africa is an example of this. Mali and Songhai, as well as the smaller kingdom of Ghana before them, were once great trading kingdoms famous for their gold and also salt, of course. Yet, despite their greatness, they each declined for similar reasons. The Empire of Mali, which dated from the early 13th century to the late 15th century, rose out of what was once the Empire of Ghana. Mali had been a state inside of the Ghanaian Empire. As Ghana fell because of invading forces and internal disputes, we'll talk about that in a second, Mali rose to greatness under the Islamic leadership of a legendary king named Sundiata, also known as the Lion King. Later, another great leader named Mansa Musa extended the empire. After his death, however, his sons could not hold the empire together. The smaller states uh, it had conquered broke off which is internal dispute again? We'll talk about it. And the empire crumbled as Mali's power declined. Another Islamic empire, Songhai, stressed its independence. Independence and rose to power in the area. Songhai had been an important trade center within Mali's empire, just as Mali had, uh, had once been ruled by Ghana. Great Songhai kings such as Sunni Ali Ber and Askia Muhammad extended the Songhai kingdom farther than Ghana or Mali had before it and brought an organized system of government to the area. As Ghana and Mali had done before, Timbuktu became the government educational and trade center of the empire. It was the largest and most powerful kingdom in medieval West Africa. The riches of gold and salt mines drew invaders, though. In the late 16th century, a Moroccan army attacked the capital. The Songhai Empire, already weakened by internal political uh, struggles went into decline. All right, so basically the internal struggle thing that you guys need to know on that is when you have issues inside of your empire, those are internal disputes. Usually that means like a civil war happening or people in your government that are rebelling, like China has it all the time with their um, dynastic cycle where the peasants are rebelling inside of the country. Those are internal struggles. If somebody's invading you from the outside, those are external struggles. Okay. Uh, That's it. Uh, That is 3.2. Make sure you go through the video because there's definitely some stuff in the video that I didn't talk about here that are asked in the essential questions.